Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. You're listening to American Shadows, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. The alarm rang out at 2 a.m. Bostonians, aware of how fast fires spread, threw on clothing, grabbed buckets, and hurried outside. Spring hadn't yet arrived as of March 20th of 1760, and those who hadn't dressed warmly felt the cold. Generally, when the call went out, people searched the sky for smoke or flames, trying to get a sense of how close the danger was to their home or business. This time, the source was easy to see. A house on Cornhill, which is now Washington Street, had caught fire, and it had spread before the alarm went out. No one knew exactly how the fire started. Maybe an ember from a fireplace or an unattended candle. Every able-bodied man, woman, and child raced to the area, buckets in hand. The incentive, other than a sense of community, was how flammable buildings were and how easily fires escalated. They formed a brigade in an attempt to put out the blaze and dampen nearby buildings in hopes that the flames wouldn't spread further. But the fire proved too aggressive, and was soon out of control. It traveled both north and south, taking out every home, stable, and business along the way. Then the wind shifted, changing the course of the fire with it. The blaze burned homes on what was once King Street. The Bunch of Grapes Tavern burned to ash. Warehouses full of flammable merchandise became additional fuel. Before long, the fire raced towards Long Wharf. Both docks and ships and all the cargo aboard them were in danger. Along the southeastern front near Water Street, flames lapped at the homes there. The blaze spread toward the Bitter March and Fort Hill areas. Burning wildly, it headed toward South Battery, and citizens began to panic. You see, the warehouses in South Battery contained a large amount of gunpowder. Volunteers raced to remove as much as they could. They dragged bags and barrels, spilling powder in their rush. Meanwhile, the fire licked dangerously close. There just wasn't enough time to remove all the gunpowder. At the last second, the men fled with their lives from both the fire and the explosion. People from as far away as Hampton, New Hampshire, said they'd heard the blast. For over 10 hours, Bostonians battled the flames. By the time the blaze was under control, 174 homes and 175 businesses had burned to the ground. More than 1,000 people were left unhoused. Despite the loss, no one died. Considered the worst fire in the city's history, the damage came to 53,334 pounds sterling. That's more than 10 million pounds today. The destruction couldn't have come at a worse time. The French and Indian War had strapped the city for cash. 
Charitable contributions poured in, some from as far away as England. The Massachusetts legislature gave the city 3,000 pounds. New York and Pennsylvania agreed to send some of their own relief money, too. But it wasn't enough. And while Boston was under British rule, no support arrived from King George III, even after Bostonians sent a petition. Some say that Boston held a grudge that lasted into the Revolution. Firefighters urged citizens to boycott British goods. The city was rebuilt, and life went on. Over the next hundred years, the fire became part of the past. As the saying goes, those who don't learn from history are destined to repeat it. I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. Welcome to American Shadows. In 1852, Moses Farmer and William Francis Channing invented a revolutionary device in public safety, fire alarm boxes. Boxes on every street corner meant alerting the public faster. Pulling the lever sent a telegraph with the box's location to nearby fire stations. In the past, people had used wooden rattles, word of mouth, trumpets, and church bells to send up the alarm. There was a catch, though. The boxes were locked, and only police, firefighters, or other city officials had a key. And that meant any citizen who noticed a fire still had to track down someone who could pull the lever. As you might imagine, this meant a delay in summoning firefighters, defeating much of the alarm's intent. Still, policemen walked the streets at night, and the city felt safer for it. If one of them spotted a fire, an alarm box wouldn't be far. Other advancements had been made as well. A few years after the boxes were installed, fire pumps, the precursor to fire engines, had replaced bucket brigades. Horses pulled most fire pumps or engines. Others were pulled by the strongest men within the fire companies. But even those pulled by horses often didn't have riding room for firefighters who would run alongside the horses, meaning that by the time the men reached a fire, they were worn down already. The addition of running boards helped carry a few men with the pumps, but not enough to fight larger fires. Motorized engines didn't become common until the early 1900s. Fighting fires became quicker once the city installed municipal water sources and more departments switched to horses to haul the pumps. The invention of riveted leather hoses designed to fit early fire hydrants made fighting blazes easier as well. But the addition of men and heavy hoses meant more weight for the horses to pull. And so, to prevent the animals' fatigue, the city added more horse companies, that is, fire stations that included stables. With so many advances, Boston had put the memory of the 1760 blaze behind them. The population swelled to over 177,000 by 1860. Buildings that were once two or three stories tall gave way to eight-story wooden A-frame structures. The rooftops were mansard style, wooden and rectangular, double-sloped on each side, and those slopes steeply pitched. Ladders couldn't reach windows above four stories, much less the rooftops. Warehouses cropped up downtown due to a tax loophole. Any merchandise stored in attics wasn't taxable. Wooden structures, wooden roofs, warehouses full of merchandise, items crammed into attics, and it didn't stop there. Warehouse owners often carried insurance to offset any loss. 
In fact, insurance fraud involving arson wasn't uncommon. With such insurance, some business owners didn't care if their warehouse burned or not. And Boston's streets were narrow and crooked. The water infrastructure was ancient and pipes leaked badly, resulting in a lack of water pressure. Even at their best, the hydrants had never been designed to have enough pressure to reach beyond a couple of stories. Where you and I see a disaster waiting to happen, most citizens did not. Most, but not all. John Stanhope Damrell had been born in Boston and lived there his whole life. While he owned a construction business, he had also devoted his time to the city, serving as a volunteer fireman. With his drive and dedication, Damrell rose through the city's ranks. After becoming an elected official on the Boston Common Council in 1857, he worked on legislation to improve fire safety and enhance building codes. His suggestions didn't go over well with city officials who insisted that the current safety precautions were more than enough. In 1866, he was elected as the city's chief engineer. He warned officials about the issues that would spell a disaster during another major fire. His warnings again fell on deaf ears. They'd gone over a hundred years without a major fire. They didn't see the value in costly upgrades to building codes, pipe repairs, and installation of newer and more hydrants, when what they had seemed to be working just fine. Undaunted, Damrell advocated for the creation of a building department and inspection service. Finally, in 1871, Boston passed regulations for building inspections. Later in that same year, Chicago suffered their worst fire in history killing 300 and turning three square miles of the city to ash and rubble. Damwell headed to Chicago to learn more about the fire. He interviewed officials and firefighters. What he learned was a wake-up call. Like Boston, buildings in Chicago were mostly constructed of wood. Densely packed areas with buildings in close proximity had allowed the fire to spread quickly. Hoping to create fire breaks, Officials had used gunpowder to detonate some buildings, but flying debris and flammable gunpowder only made the fires worse. When Damrell returned to Boston, he lobbied to make repairs to the city's pipes and add more hydrants. Officials scoffed. What had happened to Chicago surely wouldn't happen to them. In late October of that year, an equine virus swept through the Northeast. The city's horses became too weakened and ill to pull the fire pumps. To replace them, Damrell hired 500 men to do the back-breaking work instead. On November 9th, Bostonians spent the day enjoying the mild temperatures. Winter would come all too soon, and many stayed out well after the street lamps came on. Damrell was sitting in his Beacon Hill home, enjoying the restful and quiet evening, when the alarms went off around 7 p.m. He listened carefully. Five dings, a pause, and then two more indicating box number 52. Damrell knew what that meant. The box sat at the corner near Summer, Lincoln, and Bedford Streets, the warehouse district. There couldn't be a worse place for a fire to break out. He threw on a jacket and shoes and headed toward the scene. He hadn't gone far when his worst fears were realized. The night sky was alight with an orange glow. The entire district was burning. The fire had probably already started when the only patrolman in the area passed the warehouse around 7 o'clock. 
Since it started in the basement, there were no telltale flames or detectable smoke. Having seen nothing suspicious, he'd moved on to the rest of his beat. After burning through the contents of the basement, the fire traveled up the wooden elevator shaft. From there, clothing and other dry goods fueled the flames as it raced through the other three floors to the cedar roof. Given the flammability of the merchandise, the fire became intensely hot. But no one noticed it until the windows blew out from the heat. By that point, the flames had already jumped to the neighboring building's rooftops. It took 20 minutes to find someone with a key to the alarm box. And it took longer for the firemen to reach the district since the horses were sidelined. The hired men were strong, but considerably less so than the horses and a lot slower. By the time exhausted firefighters arrived 45 minutes later, the fire had completely consumed the building. To the gathering onlookers, the granite warehouse resembled a giant furnace. Three of the fire companies had arrived just before Damrell. He joined them, helping to position the heavy leather hose toward the inferno. He shouted for them to hold the corner. The weak water pressure from the hose couldn't reach the upper floors, and the fire continued to rage. A large piece of granite fell directly on the hose, cutting it in half. The men set to work with equipment from another engine, while the flames continued to leap from one building to the next, setting the roofs ablaze within minutes. More firefighters and civilians arrived to assist. Three more boxes sounded the alarm in the span of half an hour. The firemen looked to Damrell for direction. Also vying for his attention were city leaders who wanted to plan out a strategy for not only fighting the fire, but also the political fallout that would surely follow. Amidst all of this, a young boy tugged on Damrell's sleeve, begging for help. His parents were trapped in a building a few doors down. One glance at the blaze told Damrell that the boy was now an orphan, and if he couldn't figure out a way to contain the fire, more people would die. They needed to establish a perimeter. To do that, he had to see what direction the fire was heading. He needed a better viewpoint than standing in the smoke-filled street. Dismissing the officials, Damrell ran three blocks over to Milk Street, smashed in the tallest building's door with an axe, and raced upstairs to the rooftop. His heart sank. The fire had spread in multiple directions. There weren't enough men or engines, not enough water pressure. He had to choose. Stables made of wood, containing an abundance of hay, were plentiful on the south side. If the fire reached there, he reasoned, there would be no stopping it. He returned to the men battling the blaze, pleased that at least the officials had given up and left him to do his job. All but a few of Boston's 21 fire companies had arrived at the scene. He learned that fire companies across the river in Cambridge and Charlestown had also sent every available fireman and engine. Others from as far away as Connecticut, Vermont, and New Hampshire had also pledged to help. Some were sending steam-driven fire engines by railroad. Damrell hoped that would be enough. They had been fortunate to get the help they had. Most telegraph offices had either closed for the evening or for the entire weekend. He gathered a few of the firemen and formed a plan with what they had. By 10 p.m., the fire had spread three additional blocks and three different directions. An alarm went up from boxes 48 and 123. 
While some citizens had rolled up their sleeves and tried to help, looters darted in and out of buildings, often finding themselves in need of subsequent rescue. Those who'd lost their homes wandered aimlessly. An ever-growing number of onlookers, over 100,000 according to first-hand accounts, also filled the now crowded and narrow streets, adding to the firefighters' difficulties. And when Damrell thought it couldn't possibly get much worse, it did. The wind picked up, ushering the flames farther and faster. The blaze took on a life of its own, becoming a firestorm. The buildings that housed the Boston Globe and the Herald both burned to the ground. Gas lines erupted, popping streetlights. Between the fire and the explosions, the city glowed like a white-hot ember, turning night into day. Sailors off the coast in Maine reported seeing the fire. Around 11 p.m., the fire spread to the harbor, setting a schooner aflame. A tugboat crew acted as a fireboat and managed to save a few bridges. Those fighting the fire on land didn't have the same luck. The weak water pressure couldn't reach the highly flammable rooftops. The fire leapt and danced from rooftop to rooftop, just out of the firemen's reach. The strong wind spread dust, debris, and flaming embers over the city. In South Abington, some 20 miles from Boston, a local found a slightly burned $50 bill. By midnight, the fire had consumed five city blocks. Damrell and the firefighters continued holding back the flames as best they could. By 6 a.m., Washington Street was ablaze, with the fire continuing to spread through the town center. Meanwhile, city officials had gathered without Damrell. By the time the sun rose that Sunday morning, they'd come to a decision. They summoned Damrell once more. When he arrived, after a long night of fighting the fire, they filled him in on their plan. He had heard this tactic before. It hadn't worked for Chicago. It would be a disaster. Nothing he said convinced them to change their minds. The city officials had decided to create a firebreak using gunpowder. And even worse, they ordered him to do it. Everything was chaos. As businesses burned, more and more shopkeepers arrived to salvage what they could. Looters ran in after them, taking whatever the owners couldn't carry. All except for one, Hovey's department store. With the fire encroaching, employees and volunteers determined to save something ran inside. They grabbed garments and other cloth goods, using the store's faucet to wet the items. When the faucets ran dry, they formed a bucket brigade from outside hydrants to the top floor, soaking anything flammable. Their goal was to keep the fire at bay until firefighters arrived. Soaked clothing and rugs hung from the windows. A few brave employees stayed inside, stamping out small fires. Outside, cheers went up as firefighters arrived with hoses, dousing the building. While Hovey's was saved, others were not. Fires burned with such intensity that they prevented firefighters from getting close enough to do much good. Their efforts seemed futile. All they could manage to do was slow the fire down. Those in the historic district watched helplessly as the fire crept closer. At City Hall, Damrell continued to argue with the other officials. In the end, 
Postmaster General William Burt convinced the mayor that gunpowder was their only hope. Seeing he had no alternative, Damrell tried to at least convince them that they should be selective in which buildings to detonate. But Burt saw no value in the city engineer's warnings and remained confident that he should be allowed to level buildings without approval. With new orders to use gunpowder as a firebreak, Damrell left, eager to, in any case, get back to his men and the fire. His warnings unheard, he followed through with the mayor's orders, taking precautions as best he could. First, the gas lines had to be shut down. After detonating two buildings and barely escaping with his life, Damrell defied the mayor and halted the use of gunpowder. It put lives at risk and only fueled the fire. Bert, on the other hand, didn't bother shutting off the gas valves. As you might expect, the combination of fire, gunpowder, and gas did more than level the intended building. Massive fireballs shot into the air, high enough that residents in New Hampshire saw the flames. Now, firefighters were busy putting out additional fires while dealing with gas leaks and explosions. On the corner of Summer and Holly, the reverend and staff at Trinity Church spent hours saving the church's valuables before the fire made it too dangerous to re-enter. Then they stood and watched the flames consume everything else. Priceless and rare books were destroyed when Copley's library burned to ash, and several publishing houses were also destroyed. The fire was threatening centuries-old landmarks. The Old South Meeting House was one of the last few colonial buildings still standing. Built in 1729, the meeting hall had hosted countless church sermons and public meetings. Some of the most historic events leading to the American Revolution had happened within its walls. African-American poet Phyllis Wheatley had been one of the many enslaved members of the hall's Puritan congregation. William Dawes attended covert meetings there before riding with Paul Revere. A young Benjamin Franklin attended church sermons at the meeting house. And it was there that Sam Adams planned the Boston Tea Party. Bostonians still met at the hall to discuss and debate the city's crucial concerns. And sure, the building itself was a mere symbol, but an important one to many people. With the fire imminent, the bells in the tower were rung one more time at 6 a.m. As the last bell chimed, New Hampshire firefighters arrived in a steam-powered fire engine. After hosing down a building across the road, they stopped the fire at Washington Street, saving the historic meeting house. The Old South Meeting House still stands today. On State Street, 40 more New Hampshire firemen in steam fire engines set up a position ahead of the blaze, hosing down buildings to prevent the flames from spreading. By 1 p.m., the fires began to dwindle, at 2 p.m., the men put out the last of them to a cheering crowd. After a long day, the tired men climbed back onto their steam fire engines and headed home. Bostonians, feeling the worst was over, continued to gather downtown to assess the damage. Most of the buildings there had burned to the ground. The rest were ruined beyond repair. Almost everything inside them had been reduced to ash. Owners and onlookers picked through the sooty debris. There was nothing left to do now except start over. Those who had businesses on the other side of the fire line felt lucky. While they may have had some water damage, they were still standing. But not for long. 
At 10 o'clock that evening, an explosion started another fire. For reasons unknown, the gas lines still hadn't been turned off. A building on the corner of Summer and Washington had the misfortune of being above one of those gas lines, and it exploded. When another gas line running under the street went up, it sent a manhole cover sailing through the air. Other nearby buildings that had survived the previous night's disaster were leveled or severely damaged. Firefighters once again raced to fight the fires before they spread. Around midnight, with the gas lines finally shut down, firefighters extinguished the last of the flames. Damrell and his crews continued to soak buildings and streets before officially determining the blaze was out for good. Dirty, tired, their eyes and lungs burning, they finally went home. Damrell returned to his own house on Beacon Hill, feeling secure that at last the ordeal was over. But sadly, he couldn't have been more wrong. The city lay in ruins. What the fire hadn't destroyed, explosions and water damage had. The flames had spread over 65 acres, burning 767 buildings. The financial damage was great. In today's money, it would be well over a billion dollars. The claims people filed actually bankrupted close to 33 insurance companies. It had taken 17 hours and firemen from 27 towns to stop the siege. Nine firefighters from Boston, Cambridge, Malden, and Worcester died fighting the blaze. Two more died days later from wounds and burns. Sixteen civilians, including two children, had also died. The military arrived to keep peace and order. Some people had lost everything, and with their insurance companies bankrupt, many took to drinking. Ministers preached on people's sins. In the aftermath, city officials formed a commission to investigate the cause of what they now called the Great Boston Fire. So much of the city's population was now out of work. Financially, it was one of the most expensive fires in history. Rebuilding the city and the harbor would take time and extensive funding. Everything Damrell had told them could happen did. But the commission was torn. Admitting that would be accepting blame for not listening to advanced warning, years' worth. In the end, the commission highlighted exactly what the engineer had noted. Problems with infrastructure, lack of building codes, and poor construction practices. They blamed the leaky water pipes for allowing the fire to spin out of control. There was one person at fault, they said. The city engineer, Damrell. The mayor and committee interrogated Damrell repeatedly, using any potentially conflicting words against him. They told the press that the hero behind the fire had been burnt for his use of gunpowder. Newspapers quickly retold the story. Firemen rallied behind Damrell. They pointed out that the use of gunpowder had caused more fires, and that surely they knew more about fires than the postmaster general. The committee turned on them, too, questioning their every decision, their every move during the blaze. No amount of evidence seemed proof enough that they or the city engineer had done their jobs properly. Anything, it seemed, was better than conceding that officials had long ignored the warnings. In the end, Damrell was dismissed from his post. 
It took two years to rebuild the city. While they'd let Damrell go, they did use his suggestions. Wide and straight streets, more stone buildings, less flammable materials. The city had more and newer fire hydrants installed. And Damrell rebuilt as well. He may not have been the city engineer any longer, but he certainly wasn't going to stop trying to make Boston safer. In 1873, he founded the National Association of Fire Engineers, now called the International Association of Fire Chiefs. As the Foundation's president, he published articles on fire safety and building codes. In 1877, the city appointed him as the new building commissioner, and he served for 25 years. Damrell retired in 1903, confident the next building commissioner would pick up where he left off. That man was Damrell's son. There's more to this story. Stick around after this brief sponsor break to hear all about it. Tired of restless nights? Meet Lisa, the sleep experts. <sighs> Here at Lisa, we know that good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. That's why their mattresses are made for exceptional comfort and support, catering to every sleep need. Check out Lisa's Sapira Hybrid Mattress, named best hybrid mattress five years running. Sleep hot? The Chill Collection is built with cool-to-the-touch top fabric and layers of high-density comfort foams, all intended to remove excess body heat while maximizing comfort. With Lisa, getting a new mattress has never been easier. Delivery is free, and you have 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. Don't spend another night dreaming of better sleep. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com forward slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. That's l-e-e-s-a.com forward slash iHeart. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. It all started with an attempt to clean up the landfill. The small town of Centralia had once been a booming coal town. In the mid-1800s, when it came to power, coal was king. And the small Pennsylvania town had an abundance of very dense coal called anthracite. The land, purchased in 1842 by Locust Mountain Coal and Iron, brought in workers like Alexander Ray, a mining engineer. Ray saw a vision for the town and planned an entire community from the streets to the home lots. Two years later, the Mine Run Railroad moved coal out of the valley to other states. The population continued to grow. 
Over the years, more mines opened and more families moved in. The mines provided a seemingly endless source of revenue and jobs, and the town flourished. In 1890, the town population grew to 2,761, pushing the limits of how many people could live in the 65-acre stretch of land. Life was good, though, and the money flowed for nearly 40 years more. Then coal production slowed, and the Great Depression hit. The town didn't have the same wash of funds that once enjoyed. In 1949, state law allowed for the Centralia Council to acquire all rights to the coal beneath the town a year later. The population had dwindled to just 1,986 residents. Still, the town continued to export a lesser amount of coal into the 1960s when most mining companies in the town closed. Meanwhile, in 1962, the officials and residents agreed something had to be done with the current landfill. Over the years, local firefighters would do a controlled burn of a landfill in one location while a new landfill was started elsewhere. The Centralia Borough Council hired a handful of the town's firefighters to dispose of the trash. The current landfill location was an abandoned strip mine pit next to the cemetery. And like they'd done in the past, the firefighters set the heap on fire. But unlike before, they let this particular fire burn longer. Some even debate whether the fire was ever fully extinguished, though coal bootleggers insist the fire had been snuffed out or they wouldn't have been able to continue their work in abandoned mine shafts. No one had paid attention to the borough's law that a fire-resistant clay barrier be placed between each layer in the landfill. Sure, they'd started it at some point, but then stopped or forgotten. Complicating the issue was the fact that the pit hadn't been sealed before piling on years' worth of trash. Nor had anyone noted that the landfill was situated over open areas in the coal mines. No regulations about that existed then, but even if legal mining hadn't created chasms underneath the landfill, bootleggers over the years had been taking coal from the pillars that held up the mines. The hot and long-burning fire, along with the proximity to an open pit, caused a collapse into the mine. The flames found extra fuel in the dense coal, the air in the labyrinth of tunnels provided the right amount of oxygen. It was the perfect storm. That June, firefighters were called to extinguish two separate fires in the area. Both were put out above ground. Extinguishing the flames below ground proved impossible. Some residents began to report health issues and moved away. A few houses suffered foundation issues as the ground beneath them shifted. But as a whole, much of the community stayed for as long as the jobs did. Then they moved on as well, leaving the population ever smaller. Seventeen years later, in 1979, a gas station owner, who also happened to be the mayor, checked the fuel level in his tanks. When he withdrew the dipstick, he found it too hot to touch. After lowering a thermometer into the tank, he discovered the temperature of the gas had reached 172 degrees Fahrenheit, that's almost 78 Celsius. Engineers determined that some areas underground may have reached 900 degrees. The people still living in the borough stayed vigilant about potential fire hazards. For three years, their luck held. Many convinced themselves that the fires had burnt themselves out, or that whatever remained was contained below ground, and that either way, if the mines were really dangerous, they would have already caused a bigger problem. 
1981, the ground beneath 12-year-old Todd Domboski's feet gave way, and a sinkhole opened up in his backyard, four feet wide by 150 feet deep. Fortunately for Todd, he'd managed to cling to the edge, and his 14-year-old cousin pulled him to safety. Not only would the drop have killed him, the steam rising from the sinkhole contained a lethal amount of carbon monoxide. Despite the evidence, the community became even more divided on whether the fires remained a threat. Federal investigators felt differently, and in 1983, Congress approved a $42 million budget for relocating the remaining residents. A thousand residents moved, 63 stayed. The government had over 500 businesses and homes demolished to prevent anyone from occupying them. In 1992, in an attempt to get the remaining residents to leave, the governor invoked eminent domain for the entire borough and condemned every building. Perhaps surprisingly, the residents filed a legal action to overturn the ruling, though that eventually failed. As a further deterrent, in 2002, the post office began refusing to service the borough's only zip code. But despite the dangers and eviction notices, seven residents refused to move and filed another countersuit. Though they were allowed to stay, court orders prevent them from including the property in their wills or from selling their homes. The mines beneath Centralia still burn, raining ash over the land, and will likely continue to do so for another 250 years. And they aren't the only mines that still burn in Pennsylvania. As of this recording, there are 38 others. American Shadows is hosted by Lauren Vogelbaum. This episode was written by Michelle Muto, researched by Ali Steed, and produced by Miranda Hawkins and Trevor Young, with executive producers Aaron Menke, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. To learn more about the show, visit GrimAndMile.com. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. <sighs> Celebrate the end of your workday with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as another busy Tuesday flies by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. 